Israeli forces have shot dead one of Palestine's most significant and influential reporters. Tonight we'll explain the significance of the killing and speak to one of her friends um, and an expert on the region. We'll also give you the latest on UK politics, mainly um, regarding the fallout from the Queen's speech. Finally, before we get going, we should warn you our first story does contain images some people may find distressing. Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akleh has been shot dead by Israeli forces. The highly respected Palestinian journalist was covering ongoing Israeli raids on the city of Jenin in the West Bank when she was shot. Rushed to hospital in a critical condition, she was declared dead shortly afterwards. She was wearing a flak vest clearly marked with press and a helmet. The bullet hit her in her head in a small, unprotected area, suggesting sniper as the cause. The journalist you can see next to Shireen Abu Akleh is unable to move because she fears further sniper shots. Shafa Hanesha was the other journalist. She said, We were four journalists. We were all wearing vests, all wearing helmets. The Israeli occupation army did not stop firing even after she collapsed. I can't even extend my arm to pull her because of the shots. The army was adamant on shooting to kill. Another journalist was shot at the scene. Ali Samoudi also works for Al Jazeera. He was shot in the back, though luckily was protected by his flak jacket. Ali Samoudi said, We were going to film the Israeli army operation and suddenly they shot us without asking us to leave or stop filming. The first bullet hit me and the second bullet hit Shireen. There was no Palestinian military resistance at all at the scene. The Israeli Foreign Ministry has denied they are responsible for the killing of Shireen Abu Akla. They tweeted, This morning in Jenin, terrorists heard saying, quote, They've hit one. They've hit a soldier. He's laying on the ground. But no IDF soldier was injured in Jenin. Palestinian terrorists firing indiscriminately are likely to have hit Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akla. So the claim being made by the Israelis is that Shireen Abu Akla was not killed by Israeli snipers but rather by Palestinian militants who mistook her for a soldier. That would seem unlikely, given how clear her press jacket was. It's also a sharp contradiction with what was reported by the journalists who were present. What's more is that thanks to research by Israel's leading human rights group, Betzalem, we can be almost certain the account of the Israeli government is not true. Betzalem have released this video taken by a field researcher. It starts at the location shown in the video released by Israel's foreign ministry, where a Palestinian militant was shown shooting and then celebrating killing someone who he believed to be a soldier. If we cut to the video's end, we can see where Shireen Abu Akla was shot dead. It's a very long distance from where the shooting shared by the Israeli government took place, and there are multiple twists and turns. It shows the video shared by the Israeli foreign ministry cannot be related to Shireen Abu Akla's death. And this killing has shaken Palestinian communities. That's not only because of how it has demonstrated Israeli impunity, but because Shireen Abu Akla was one of the most famous and well-respected journalists in the Arab world. Shireen Abu Akla would not be the first journalist to have been killed by Israeli forces in Palestine. Palestinian Journalist Syndicate reports that 86 Palestinian journalists have been killed since the occupation began in 1967, with 50 of those deaths taking place since the year 2000. Six journalists have been killed in the last two years alone. For their part, Reporters Without Borders have documented that 144 Palestinian journalists have been hit by live rounds, rubber bullets, stun grenades or tear gas fired by Israeli military or police since 2018. But despite this clear disregard for the lives of journalists, the Western press appear keen to give Israel the benefit of the doubt. This is how Al Jazeera reported the killing. It's based on what their own reporters saw and it's unequivocal. Shireen Abu Akla was killed by Israeli gunfire. But much of the press was not willing to take Al Jazeera's journalists at their word. The Guardian led with this. Al Jazeera accuses Israeli forces of killing journalists in West Bank. They then say, Israel has said Shireen Abu Akla may have been hit by Palestinian fire. This was from the New York Times. Al Jazeera journalist is killed in West Bank. The circumstances surrounding the fatal shooting of Shireen Abu Akla, a Palestinian-American journalist, were not immediately clear. So you've got absolutely no idea whatsoever what happened from that headline. Earlier today, I spoke to Professor Abdel Razak Takriti, director of the Center for Arab Studies at the University of Houston, and a friend of Shireen Abu Akla. 
I began by asking him to explain how Palestinians in the Arab world have reacted to her death. There's an outpour of sympathy for Shireen. There's a great deal of shock and horror at what took place. This was the murder uh, of uh, a journalist in broad daylight. It was widely seen as an execution, in fact, uh, because what took place, unlike the story that some of the British media is circulating, uh, echoing the Israeli prime minister's account, uh, which is absolutely false, what took place was that Shireen and six other journalists went to cover the situation in Jenin camp. When they arrived to the camp, things were quiet. Israeli forces were besieging a home, but there was no exchange of uh, gunfire. These are, uh, let me remind you, these are veteran journalists that have been covering uh, Israeli violations, massacres, attacks, and invasions of this sort for many, many years. They know the procedure. She was wearing full vest that showed press very clearly on it. She wore the helmet, also had press on it. Israeli forces know the press cars, which were, of course, clearly marked as well. The press arrived there. Shireen descended from the car, and her producer also descended. They shot the producer in the back, and they shot Shireen in the face. And it was sniper fire. This was Israeli sniper fire. It's now being presented. I've just read the BBC reporting, which is actually, uh, I find it shameful and disgraceful that fellow journalists would do this, where they would cover up for the murder of one of the world's leading journalists. Honestly, I, I don't think I, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that Shireen had tens of millions of followers over the course of a quarter century. Very few journalists anywhere could claim that. And she gets murdered in cold blood, executed in this way, and they're describing it as a matter of uh, there is one version here that is a Palestinian version, another that is Israeli version. It's enough for them, for the Israelis to say anything. You know, any claim they make is deemed worthy of pointing next to the claims of the journalists that were that were there. Now, the, the journalist that got shot in the in the upper back near the shoulder, um, who was of course the producer with with Shireen, he reported accurately on what took place, and he said there were no clashes. We do not enter clashes. We know what to do as journalists, as veteran journalists in the sea. They've covered all sorts of events of, the, of this kind for many, many years. What was happening was a targeted killing. And it really has shocked the entire region. It has shocked all the people that have known Shireen, and she had many, many friends one response to what you just said, you know, it being a targeted killing, is you might wonder, why would the Israeli forces want to kill a prominent journalist? Because from an outside perspective, that looks like, clearly that's going to backfire for them. That's going to make them look inhumane and make them look like they don't respect human rights if they go for someone that prominent. Can you make that make sense? Do you think they would have done this on purpose? And if so, why? Michael, uh, the, the, the question is, is trying to search for logic, okay, behind their actions. I don't see any logic in the massacres they commit in that place. I don't see a logic in the colonialism they impose on the Palestinian people. I don't see a logic in them shooting at pregnant women or stopping people at checkpoints for the, for the fun of it in many cases. Uh, you know, they put all these soldiers into the ground. Uh, most of them are very uh, young. Uh, most of them are uh, very ideologically driven. Uh, they're taught uh, that that Palestinian lives are worthless, okay? So they don't have a problem in shooting anybody, okay? And they could have just seen, I don't know what was going on in the minds of whichever particular sniper shot her, and we know it is a sniper. But what I find astonishing is that whenever you talk to the Western press, they ask questions like that. They're trying to probe for Israeli logic. They never try to do that, for example, if you're discussing Ukraine or you're discussing any other part of the world. Why do colonial uh, states commit crimes? They commit them because they can. They commit them because somebody like Shireen, by the way, has been reporting so extensively, and the press has been reporting so extensively at what's going on, to the extent that they reveal the reality on the ground. 
Okay. And uh, to be honest with you, this is not the first time the press gets attacked by Israeli forces. We have very short-term memory, uh, but do you remember the time when they bombed the, an entire press building in Gaza? A very tall building filled with press offices. I think the world has forgotten. Why would they do that, you ask? Why are they targeting the press in that way? Why do they harass journalists all the time? Uh, let me ask you another question. Now there was a funeral of Shireen and there was a gathering of her friends and family and the people that loved her in her home, including some friends of mine were there. They attacked the gathering, they attacked her house. They raided the house of the journalists they just murdered. So let's stop trying to find excuses for them. I should be clear with my question. I wasn't meaning to, to justify or both sides anything. It's just, I feel like explaining why someone might do something can be useful for other reasons. We, we actually do the same when it comes to, to Russia. To end, could you talk about, I suppose, the possibility for you know, any accountability here? Is there any chance that Israel will pay any price for what they have done? Or, or can they be confident that they can behave like this with impunity? They, they can be confident that they can behave with this impunity because they have, let me be very frank, they have the support of the United States, they have the support of Britain, they have the support of Europe. There, there is no accountability for Israel ever for anything. They, they've, they've colonized the Palestinian people for a hundred years. Okay, this is a settler colonial state. Okay, uh, this is a, a state that's called an apartheid regime by both Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch. And in the meantime, you have British government flaunting its relations with it. And you have uh, anybody that criticizes Israel in Britain or Europe or elsewhere is sometimes accused of anti-Semitism. It's outrageous. I'm sorry, there is, we have to think about Palestinians. And they've created a whole range of arguments and discourses and legal mechanisms to prevent talking about Palestinians in Europe. You have very little freedom of speech, by the way, around Palestine. And there's a lot of anybody that wants to criticize Israel has to uh, think a thousand times in Britain. Even politicians are afraid to criticize. That was Abdel Razak Takriti speaking to me earlier today. Of course, you know, we can only send out all of our solidarity to, to anyone um, affected by this, you know, incredibly awful, awful event. Let's go to our next story. With energy bills rising, incomes crashing, and food poverty soaring, this week has seen one event which, more than anything, puts on show everything wrong with Britain. Her Majesty's government's priority is to grow and strengthen the economy and help ease the cost of living for families. Her Majesty's government will level up opportunity in all parts of the country and support more people into work. That was the future monarch sitting in a literal gold throne, telling us how much his mum's government cares about the cost of living crisis. Prince Charles was standing in for the Queen, which meant we were treated to these images of the imperial state crown being delivered by a Rolls Royce. Remember, this takes place while there are pensioners spending their days riding buses to avoid having to heat their homes. And if that hasn't fully grossed you out, check out the front page of The Sun. They covered the speech with the headline, I hope I did you proud, mummy. Remember, this man is 73 years old, and all he did was read someone else's speech. And not in a particularly exciting way either. Moving on from symbolism and Freudian bath fests, the Queen's speech serves as an opportunity for the government of the day to set out the bills they plan to pass during the coming parliamentary session. And this time around, 38 bills were mooted. That included an animal welfare bill to tackle puppy smuggling, a bill of rights making it easier to deport people, a ban on protesters taking direct action by locking on to targets, and nothing concrete whatsoever to tackle the cost of living crisis. I'm joined now by Dahlia Gabriel. Can I get your response to the Queen's speech? I mean, it's all there, isn't it? In, in Britain, we have a tale of two pensioners that defines our society. There's no, no difference between them uh, other than an accident of birth. But one of them, as you said, rides buses all day to keep herself warm. Uh, and the other sits on a throne of stolen wealth. 
it's obviously deeply sinister to see a man who did nothing but be born, who lives off riches, extracted and stolen from working class people all around the world, talk about leveling up and getting people into work when real leveling up would obviously involve abolishing everything that he stands for, namely extraction, colonialism, unearned wealth, unearned privilege, etc. But aside from the distasteful image um, of, you know, a man on a gold throne casually talking about one of the most egregious attacks on our democratic rights in at least a generation, I think there's also something that we should really pay attention to here and something that we should be anticipating as the left, as progressive people. Obviously, Charles doing the Queen's speech this year is the beginning of a shift in power in the royal family. Clearly, the era of Elizabeth is coming to an end, probably, and we are seeing the beginning of Charles taking power. And I think we will be quite surprised, actually, by how much of a hit the popularity of the monarchy is likely to take when the Queen passes. At the moment, it feels pretty bulletproof. It feels pretty impenetrable. But I think after the initial, what I imagine will be sort of months and months of pageantry uh, and the reality of Charles begins to sink in, I think we're going to see a really dramatic drop in how invested people are in really going to bat for the monarchy. Charles is deeply unpopular. Camilla, even more so. Kate and William are two of the most charmless people I think I've ever seen on TV. And the monarchy are acutely aware of this. You know, I think a big reason we saw them really going after Meghan Markle was very much a way of consolidating support for a future queen, for, for Kate, given the anticipation that she won't be as popular or that the monarchy will have a popularity hit. You know, through the tool, through racism, of course, they caricatured Meghan as a bad mother, a bad wife, a bad daughter, a bad sister a bad princess or whatever she was, and put her into conflict with Kate in order to essentially uplift Kate. So the worse a mother, the worse a royal Meghan is, the better a royal and the better a mother and the better a woman Kate is. And so given that likely crisis of popularity that is incoming that I think the monarchy has shown they are very aware of, we should really think about how we want to be positioned in that. We shouldn't let that moment take us by surprise, but actually think really proactively about how that moment can be used to teach larger lessons and to expose larger contradictions. And, you know, Kojo Koram's book on Commonwealth does a really good job of this, where he brings in all of these conversations about colonial legacies and the monarchy and the empire and brings it into a conversation about how the British state functions today. So the fact that the royal family is not a family, but is actually a corporation that is a wing of the British state. And as that corporation, it is the largest landowner in the world. Many of its territories are used to hoard the wealth of financial elites through offshoring, through shell companies or what have you. And the monarchy and the kind of cultural power that the monarchy has internal workings of that corporation to sustain itself has an active role in sustaining that very modern contemporary system. Not to mention, of course, the colonial violence that made and continues to make um, the British monarchy. But I think also bringing what are often cast as historical debates and historical legacy questions into actually very concrete questions of contemporary power. And so this drop in popularity of the monarchy that I think we can anticipate could become a really key flashpoint, you know, one that comes around, you know, that ha hasn't been possible for the past 50, 60 years in people's understanding of the state, of its relationship to capitalism, of its relationship to colonialism, and can provide a real opening for us to really encourage people to think about the kind of government that we want, the kind of system that we want to be governed by. And if we use it right, this moment can be much more than just a matter of personal dislike for Charles and Camilla and the rest of them, but actually a historic opportunity, I think, to have a real reckoning with the ways, the intangible and tangible ways in which power in this country 
actually operates. So I think we are starting to see the beginning of that process with that incredibly charmless and distasteful and disgusting uh, display of wealth by Charles that wasn't softened by the kind of personal popularity that I think Queen Elizabeth has managed to command. Age comes with its own difficulties as well, doesn't it? So even if someone's sort of incredibly rich and privileged, if they're sort of 97, I think she is, you, you do have some sense of empathy with the person because presumably even rich people, you know, it's not that easy being 97. With Charles, there's none of that. I assume the reason they're trying to have this crossover period is so people get used to him being in that chair and so sort of like, it can be clear he has the Queen's blessing. Everyone has to say they like the Queen. Any politician who's asked about the monarchy, they have to say, well, I really like the Queen. She does a great job. Which reminds me, Prince Charles telling people to get into work, you get the job. You get the job. And get your brothers and your sisters and your mum and your kids to get jobs. Don't, don't, don't be there telling anyone else that they've got to get into work. I don't like it. It doesn't stack up. The Commons debate following the Queen's speech was mainly focused on the cost of living crisis. And in that debate, Tory MP Lee Anderson said this. But my invitation is to everybody on that side of the house, come to Ashfield and work with me for a day in my food bank and see that the, the, the brilliant scheme we've got in place, where when people come now for a food parcel, they have to register for a, a budgeted course and a cooking course. And what we do at the food bank, we show them how to cook uh, cheap, cheap and nutritious meals on a budget. We can make a meal for about 30 pence a day, and this is cooking from scratch. We're glad to give way. The, the, the uh, Honourable Member for Giving Way, can you ask me, ask me a simple question? Should it be necessary to have food banks in 21st century yeah. Britain? Yeah. I thank the Honourable Gentleman for, for his intervention. He makes a great point, and this is exactly my point. So I invite you personally to come to Ashfield, look at our food bank, how it works, and I think, you see, I think you'll see first on that there's not this use, this, this massive use for food banks in this country. We've got generation after generation who cannot cook properly, they can't cook a meal from scratch, they cannot budget, the challenge is there. Come, come, offer anybody. You, know, you sat there with, with glazed expressions on your faces, looking at me like I've landed from a different planet. Come, come to Ashfield, come next week, come the week after, come to a real food bank that's making a real difference to people's lives. To be fair to Lee Anderson, he does seem to have more on-the-ground knowledge of food banks than your average Tory, but that doesn't mean his argument makes any sense whatsoever. The Trussell Trust are the main food bank charity. In 2010, they gave out 40,000 parcels. By 2020, that figure had risen to 2.6 million. So you have to ask the question, did 2 million people suddenly forget how to cook, or did successive Tory governments condemn millions of people to food poverty who previously could put food on the table. Dahlia, which one of those options do you think is more plausible? I mean, I would love to know how many of those MPs could not only... The, it's not just about cooking one meal for 30 pence. It's about budgeting and running a household. I don't think any of them run their own households. But it also just goes to show the way in which... MPs and taught like the, these kind of this neoliberal ideology. It's not only about blaming the individual for systemic inequality, for the systemic deprivation that our system engenders, but it's also the ways in which they see they can't wait to have an opportunity to discipline the poor. Like they would almost want to keep the poor in food banks so that they can use it as a, as a way of disciplining them. You know, oh, you can have, you know, uh, a potato and a, and a tin of baked beans and a, and a bag of pasta, but you have to, you know, take all these courses and make me feel good that I'm helping you improve yourself. Sort of like this bizarre, like civilizing mission that kind of drips through. It dripped through Prince Charles's speech with the, you know, getting people back into work as if, you know, it's their fault that they're not, that they don't have work that allows them to actually put a roof over their head and provide for their families and loved ones. But also like, this kind of, oh, the, the only way to, to stop the poor from being poor is to just educate them out of their own, you know, their own un lack of civilization. Uh, and it's just this incredibly patronizing and very unrealistic way of understanding the world, which is why even though he seems to be more on the ground than other Tory MPs, He's still so inflected by his ideology of infantilizing working class people and failing to see the issue of poverty as a systemic issue that even on the ground with the people in front of him that he's talking about, he can't see the reality of what's actually going on in front of him. Next story. 
Michael Gove has been on the BBC to talk about whether the Prime Minister and the Chancellor were at odds over how to tackle the cost of living emergency. It's a deadly serious topic, literally deadly for some, but not for Gove, who seemed to think it called for comedy. We are constantly looking at ideas in order to ensure that we relieve the pressure um, on people who are facing incredibly tough times. But that doesn't amount to an emergency budget, um, which is what uh, uh, some people immediately thought that it did. Uh, it is an example of some commentators chasing their own tails uh, and trying to take a statement that is commonsensical, turning it into uh, a major capital letters, a big news story. Um, and in fact, when the Treasury quite rightly say, calm down, then um, people, um, uh, uh, instead of recognizing that they've overinflated the story in the first place, right. then say, oh, this is clearly a split. Now, I'm not averse to deploying silly voices every now and again, but I probably wouldn't do it when answering a serious question about the cost of living crisis, especially if it was a crisis I was personally responsible for. I presume, though, Gove resorted to comedy impersonations because he didn't have much else to offer. Across the morning news shows, he was also asked about the Tory manifesto pledge to build 300,000 new houses, about more measures to deal with the cost of living emergency, and whether the government would remove VAT on energy bills, just as he promised to do before the Brexit referendum. His answers were all riffs on the same theme. So and, and will 300,000 new homes be built this year? Uh, I, th I don't think we're going to hit that target this year. But Within the, other the thing next couple of years, because by the middle of the decade was the manifesto promise. Uh, we're going to do everything we can. You made a it's, pledge. You made a yeah. pledge on housing supply. Are you going to meet it by the middle of the decade? Uh, well, we're going to do everything we can, but it's no kind of success simply to hit a target if the homes that are built are shoddy, in the wrong place, don't have the infrastructure uh, uh, required and are not contributing to beautiful communities. We heard from the Prime Minister yesterday saying he will um, say more in the days to come on how to help people with the cost of living. And then uh, almost immediately, the Treasury is saying there'll be no emergency budget and we'll um, set out the budget timetable in the usual way. So who's right? Is, is, it, is there going to be an emergency budget or not? Um, uh, they're both right. And no, there won't be an emergency budget. Now that yes. we have got Brexit done, elected British politicians can do something. Yes. Why don't you do it and remove VAT on energy bills? Uh, I'd love to remove VAT on energy bills, but a more a effective way, minister, an even more effective way of helping those who are poorest is by targeting support through the council tax system that goes to those who are it's most in need. It's not an either or, Michael And of Gove. course, you when we are in a position to, when the public finances are stronger, on, then we the can take other steps in order to reduce on energy taxes. Bills. People are going to wonder why, when you are in the position to do it, you have decided not to do it. Do you think we need an emergency budget? Do we need to review the lift in corporation tax? Or do we need to cut VAT? Mr Gove? No, no, no. That last clip sums this government up perfectly. No, no, no. No to help for the poorest, no to decent housing, and no to any intervention at all in a crisis that's only just beginning to ruin countless lives. The other theme there was broken promises. The Tory manifesto promised 300,000 homes a year. Now it's just an arbitrary target. It doesn't really matter. Gove also promised during the Brexit referendum that it would mean VAT off energy bills. Now, energy is more expensive than ever. Well, meh, who cares about that policy anyway? Dahlia, with, with that prospectus on offer, if that's all you had to, to tell the public when you went on the morning shows, would you resort to silly accents? The contempt, you know, the way that he scoffed when he said emergency really just tells us everything we need to know about his attitude here. Now, I'd love to know what Michael Gove considers to be an emergency, if not the fact that we are experiencing the steepest drop in real-term wages since records began, or the fact that prices are increasing by 8%, or the fact that energy bills are going up by 54%, or the fact that food banks are having to ration what they give to people in food parcels because demand is so high, or I don't know the fact that 1.3 million people are going to be pushed into absolute poverty, so not relative poverty, but absolute poverty. 
What about any of that doesn't scream to Grove that there is a, an emergency? But of course, the reality is, is that for him and for others like him, there's no emergency at all. In fact, the corporate sector, including in retail, which is where many people's purses are being really tightened, um, many of those same sectors have boasted a very high profit throughout this crisis. And in many cases, not to mention, we are being put through this hell specifically to protect the profits of big business. So actually, our suffering is inherently connected to the success and the profiteering of some of these big, these big companies. You know, the CEO of BP actually thanked the lift on energy cap and on energy price caps on the basis that it turned BP into a cash machine. So whilst our pensioners, our working class people are being ground into poverty in order to protect oil and gas companies, literally being left out in the cold in order to protect those companies from the rise in, in oil prices, that is the world of Michael Gove. That is the world that he sees his job to protect to be is to protect that world. So for him, there is no emergency. You know, there's no crisis. This is business as usual. This is business as is desirable. The government actively attacking our standard of living, not by just not intervening, but actually by actively intervening in favor of the corporate sector at the expense of everyday working class people, all while passing this off as an inevitable crisis with inevitable consequences that no one could have seen coming. And, and as for the, the broken promises, these were never really sincere promises uh, to begin with. When a quarter of your MPs are private landlords, you know, the, a quarter of Tory MPs are private landlords, it's not in your interest to build comprehensive, fair social housing. It's not in your interest to stop the exploitation of tenants because you're the one doing the exploiting. So really, you know, I think we often talk about inequality as if it's, oh, just some people happen to be rich and some people happen to be poor and we should have, you know, more initiatives to help those people who just happen to be poor. No, no, no. The way the system is designed is that the enrichment and the protection of the profits of the very rich, of the very powerful, of the people that Michael Gove sees as his peers, as his, you know, his, his comrades, as it were, their enrichment relies directly on us not being given the things that we are entitled to as people who make this country run with our labor and also as people who deserve whatever their circum circumstances is, deserve in the 21st century to have adequate housing, adequate heating, adequate nutrition, without having to worry about their budget being so squeezed that they have to pick from one of the three. So we have to see inequality as a deeply interconnected system rather than just sort of two separate worlds that are happening independently of, of one another. That makes a lot of sense. And I mean, one thing that really frustrates me, and you know, regular viewers of this show will know, I get particularly passionate when it comes to housing, mainly just because I'm incredibly resentful of my landlord. But uh, the policy platform that Michael Gove went into the leveling up department, leveling up and housing, the idea there was he's an incredibly clever man. He's going to be able to fix the problem and apply his quick thinking to Britain's housing crisis. I mean, people from basically all parties recognize there aren't enough homes in this country. We need more homes so that maybe, possibly, people my age could afford to, to buy a house instead of renting forever. Or, heaven forbid, there'd be enough council homes for everyone. But the right answer has been to say, look, what we need to do is we need to cut regulation, then the market will come in and the market will build all of these homes. The promise from the government was that there would be 300,000 homes a year. Michael Gove went into that department specifically to do that, specifically to work out which regulations could be changed so that these houses can get built. It was a lot about the planning system. It was an idea to try and limit the ability of NIMBYs, not in my backyards, to object to new developments. They were going to fast track them. Then what happened is... Tory backbenchers, Tory MPs, as you say, Dahlia, a quarter of them are landlords, said, oh, actually, we don't want a fast-track development because actually the housing shortage benefits us because a shortage of houses means we get to charge higher rents for them. And also, all we really care about is that the houses we already own maintain their values. We don't really care about having houses for other people to live in. What we care about is the ones that we own keep their gorgeous 
views, right? So the argument from the right, we can only do this by deregulating and through the free market. That was Michael Gove's plan. We're going to do 300,000 homes a year. He realizes actually there's so many vested interests that that's completely impossible to do. They'd probably be shitty homes at incredibly high rent anyway. So he's just like, oh, actually, no, oh, uh, maybe we won't build the houses. What he should do is do what the left have been saying the whole time, which is if you want to build 300,000 homes a year, by the way, I'd make it a lot higher. If you want to build 500,000 homes a year, you can't leave it to the market. Whatever tweaks you make to the regulatory system, unless you get the state in there to build high quality council homes for everyone, then we're going to have this same crisis where we've got landlords who are exploiting people, sort of serving a parasitic role in society where you have to work half of your hours to pay someone who does nothing but sit on their butt. As Dahlia says, a quarter of Tory MPs sit in that category. A lot of Labour MPs as well. Too many Labour MPs, in fact. So this is Michael Gove trying out the right-wing option of getting new houses, failing, and instead of going to the left-wing option, which is let's actually build some council homes, saying, sorry, maybe we don't need the houses anyway. Next story. Nick Ferrari likes to make himself the centre of attention. And it seems especially if that means derailing conversations about racism. This was the LBC host speaking to academic and political commentator Mike Bancol. The main issue here is that racism in all guises is deeply harmful. Is it offensive to ask where are you from? Should I, should I have been offended since about the age of 12? I think it is offensive. I think Why? Often what happens... I've got a very weird, la- not weird, I've got a very strange last name to British people. So they're going to say, where am I from? Well, Nick, people of colour, the reason why they ask where they're from is because often it's the question... No, 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 I'm not... Well, I am of colour, of course, because I'm white. Every white is a colour, but but why the problem? I've never felt that aggressive in any way, shape or form. I can only only speak from the perspective of a a person of colour, Nick. The reason why that's... What am I, then, if I'm white? Am I not a person of colour if I'm white? The person of colour is often used to to refer to racial minorities. So what am I? You know that. You're a white man, Nick. So I'm not a colour. The person... You wouldn't be called a person of colour. Okay. Just, but what is white then? What, what is white? I thought we referred Britain, to the. I thought we. Britain, I thought we spoke to it as these ethnic minorities. In Britain, right? So people of colour is a term usually used in America, but in Britain, when that term is used, is used to refer to racial minorities. Right. Why so didn't you just say that? You would that, not then? be called a person of colour. Right. But you what? are a white man. You are not a person of colour. So white isn't a colour for you, Michael. I didn't say white's not a colour, Nick. I but why don't you just say racial colour, minorities? I don't understand why you don't use that expression. People of colour is, is also a, a, a word... That's All right, well, let's not get too, too hung up on that. Minorities. But, but, I mean, this is a like, tangential point, Nick. But the, can, the real point here, we're talking about microaggressions, not about whether people of colour refer to white people or racial minorities. This is completely tangential. How, so I was to the show to discuss, actually. How, how widespread is this? The man is a child, a small, precocious child who's been given a radio show. It's oh, so, so painful to listen to. Of course, the topic being discussed was microaggressions against ethnic minorities, and the guest discussed how people of colour are often grilled on where they are from, even when they themselves are from Britain. Instead of taking that issue seriously, Nick Ferrari made the bizarre point that he, as a white man, is a person of colour. His incredibly witty argument was that white is a colour and that therefore he is a POC. Lord, give me strength. Of course, Nick Ferrari is no stranger to microaggressions against black people, or should I say macroaggressions. This was an exchange he had with Afua Hirsch in 2018. I really like you, but I wonder if I can remind you of some words you wrote concerning Britain. please do. Britain. We have moved on from this era no more than the US from its slavery and segregationist past. The difference is that America is now in the midst of a frenzied debate on what to do about it, whereas Britain, in our inertia, arrogance and intellectual laziness, is not. I don't write that bad, do I? I? Well, you could have been a bit snappier, (laughs) but I won't worry about subbing it. Um, I'm delighted you Why do you stay in this country? If you take such offence when you see Nelson's column, if you take such offence when you hear Winston Churchill's name, who I would argue, if in the unlikely event that anybody want to have a poll, I would say probably 80 to 90% of people would say that Winston Churchill did a good thing. I'm delighted that I see you at these Thursdays. I'm delighted you opted to But if it offends you so much, how do you manage to stay here? I find that a really strange thing to say. So there's nothing in Britain that bothers you. Sure, but I don't so want to pull it down. So why is leaving an option? But I don't want this to pull is it my down. country. This, and the reason that I raise this critique is not so because I hate your... Britain, it's because I care about this country. That was Nick Ferrari telling a black British journalist that if she had complaints about Britain, she should leave. Dahlia, what do you make of Nick Ferrari saying he's a person of colour? 
I mean, why not at this point? Like, if anything is true on LBC. It's literally a land of make-believe. So I've given up, like, trying to make sense of it anymore. But this is a really common tactic that anyone who is from the left or anyone from a marginalized identity that goes on particularly radio encounters, which is these very right-wing sort of shock jocks who, when they find themselves cornered in these kinds of conversations, they just waste time by lowering the tone, by dragging their guests into nonsense, into what ifs and and what abouts that in order to essentially just turn the entire conversation into a farce. Because like, let's not forget, LBC isn't just Nick Ferrari. It, it's an institution that is heavily curated and heavily designed in order to do a particular thing. And that particular thing is to embed within the public consciousness a particular set of starting points from which everyone else is then forced, essentially, to depart from. Uh, and one of those starting points is that people of colour, um, especially those who, who are vocal about capitalism or vocal about racism, they are there to be laughed at. Uh, their struggle is there to be, to be laughed at. It's there to be diminished and, and dismissed, uh, to be turned into essentially entertainment rather than serious, historically and politically informed discussion. And just a sort of a few segments, few minute segments on a show where the narrative is entirely determined by people and not just people uh, in front of the, I guess, microphone, but also producers and the people who kind of make the, the machine run uh, from the background. It's people who have nothing but contempt for those issues and for those for those struggles. And we know that this is the institutional position, because when you look at the roster of presenters, past and present, you have what? Nick Ferrari, uh, Majid Nawaz, Nigel Farage, Katie Hopkins, Andrew Pierce. These are all extremists, essentially, that have been actively legitimized by the likes of LBC. So we should really see this as an institutional problem rather than just a Nick Ferrari problem, although Nick, it very much is also a Nick Ferrari problem. And I say this as someone who has had some experience in mainstream media of a variety of different stripes. And I often say that corporate radio, sorry, is reliably one of the most hostile media spaces that I enter as, you know, a woman of color who is also very avidly anti-capitalist, whether it's like talk radio or, or LBC, I find often that the parameters of the debate on corporate radio, so LBC, talk radio, these kinds of outlets tend to be significantly to the right, even of TV media. But Radio is also a very ubiquitous form of media, even though most of us, particularly younger people, wouldn't necessarily say that we listen to the radio. So it can seem like quite an insignificant media form. But I do think that if you, if you kind of like switch your, your antenna on when you're out in public space, you realize that radio actually forms the background noise to so many spaces that we find ourselves in. Like think about the last time that you were in an Uber or the last time that you were at the nail salon or like a hairdresser or any of the, or even like a coffee shop or something. Most likely you'll have LBC or one of these radio shows playing in the background. And so in this really ubiquitous way, radio is actually quite central to how the norms of political conversation in this country are shaped, um, even though very few of us consensually listen to it. And so for me, seeing that clip is just a reminder of the tenor and the terms with which people of color, particularly people of color who are against the grain in any minor way, the terms of the debate that they have to engage in, which is essentially set up in order to humiliate and to demean them and to drag them into conversations that are frankly beneath them. And so this is the media landscape that we exist in. And I think for many of us who, who do this kind of work, we are still trying to figure out the formula and the way of engaging with this that actually allows us to retain some kind of control and dignity in these, in these conversations that are set up to strip us specifically of those things. Next story. 
The Murdoch-owned Talk TV has tried to make a splash by emphasising the divisiveness of Piers Morgan, and he's more than happy to play that game. Just this week, he tweeted, Twitter already getting very angry about this interview. Tune in at 8pm to see it live. And that was an interview with a spokesperson for the Taliban. He has also tweeted, Tune in to Piers Morgan uncensored at Talk TV. You know you want to. Apart from Guardian readers, you're banned. And then you can see the, the advert which has been put up on buses around the country. The nation's guilty pleasure. Half of Piers Morgan is a saint and half Piers Morgan is a devil. The problem from Piers and for Murdoch, though, is that people evidently don't want to watch it. It's not our guilty pleasure. It's just something we don't really like. Jim Waterson, The Guardian's media editor, has shared the latest ratings. So he says, Piers Morgan down further to 59,000 viewers on Talk TV, being beaten by Nigel Farage, who's on 74,000, and Dan Wooten on 75,000 on GB News. Now, being beaten by Dan Wooten, that is um, really, really a humiliation. I think if you told Piers Morgan that would be the case when he signed up to that job, he would probably have had second thoughts. Murdoch and Morgan have tried to underplay the significance of the linear view. So that's the views you get on, on, on conventional channels. Morgan recently shared News UK's claim that his show got 64 million views on social media in its first week. Um, Morgan tweeted that and said, Linear TV increasingly irrelevant to total eyeball potential for a global show like this, especially with younger viewers who don't really watch TV anymore. The problem with this, it's unclear where that figure came from and if it was principally based on a one-off interview with Donald Trump. But what is clear is that Morgan can take no solace from his YouTube views. Um, so this is the, the most recent eight uploads to their channel. You've got Piers Morgan Uncensored, 6,000 views in its first 16 hours, brain dump President Meghan Markle on 3.2k views, would you beat Tyson Fury? 14,000. That's relatively good for their channel. Um, and then you've got, an, it's an assault on our identity. Interview with Douglas Murray on 4,000 views. So, and his full show, they're on 8,000 views. He apparently has a, a 50 million pound deal over three years. He's getting way, way less views than Navarra Media, an organization which is fund, funded only um, by our viewers. So, it's, it's not an impressive showing for the tens of millions of pounds that have been pumped into talk TV. My question for you, Dahlia, has it already flopped? Look, I mean, I can't speak for how Piers Morgan is received in the rest of the country. All I know is that in my neck of the woods, I, I feel like at least a third of the massive posters I've seen with Piers Morgan's face has just had like some profanity just like written right, <laughs> right over his face. So, so make of that um, what you will. I also don't actually think that we can even comprehend, especially as a small media, as like a grassroots media organization, that we can comprehend how much money these people actually have to burn. Because remember, like media hegemony isn't really a profit-making initiative. Um, it's a very long-term, somewhat non-tangible uh, investment because especially when you think about the kinds of overheads that something like Talk TV will have, this is not a profit machine. Like This is not something that is going to be making good returns on investment financially in the short term. So the return on investment isn't really profit, it's ideological hegemony, because that is important for securing profits in general. Securing profits now, in the future, the profits to come, etc. By narrowing people's um, political imagination, by disciplining and defining the way that discourse takes place, um, by creating the boundaries around what is and isn't acceptable uh, speech. This kind of media hegemony uh, that through empires like Rupert Murdoch's, this is a way of shaping the lens through which the majority of people observe the world. And that is a very particular kind of power. Uh, it has a, a long-term return on investment by making people ideologically committed to a system that harms them or at least that doesn't benefit them. And also it, it stigmatizes activism, it stigmatizes radical thinking. And so that's why we've seen the ultimate aim of corporate media to be towards 
consolidation, towards narrowing, towards concentration of power. And so the kind of journey to success looks very different when you think about it in these terms, because because these mediums don't follow the natural, the normal logic of profit ventures, they they are trying to achieve something different. So the attempt to create a UK style Fox News, which, you know, the first attempt was GB News, now it's Talk TV, that will continue regardless of whether or not they are actually successful in terms of numbers, because they they just haven't found, quite found the right formula yet. So whilst it's like somewhat enjoyable to, to see Piers Morgan tanking, but still doing better than uh, Tim Newton-Dunn, whose debut show recorded a staggering zero viewers, uh, at least for half of it. We should see this as one step in a very long-term experimentation process that is being undertaken by the likes of Andrew Neil, by the likes of Rupert Murdoch, in order to bring that Fox News model here. And by that, I mean a reactionary political force that so dominates the consciousness of key strategic segments of the voting population that it literally has the power to swing elections. And that experiment is going to continue even if, you know, version one has failed or version two has failed. And these people have nothing but money to burn in the pursuit of that formula um, that they are trying to, to execute. So I don't think that the tanking has necessarily happened because, you know, the Brits are inherently averse to right wing media. I think that they could eventually come across a formula that really works. But for them, I think, you know, these are the losses that you make before you hit the jackpot. So we haven't quite won yet. Although, you know, I'm not going to undermine the how enjoyable this sort of little li- little victory uh, is. No, you are right. I mean, they have enough money to burn that they can survive while having 4,000 views on a 10 million show for ages because, yeah, Rupert Murdoch has very, very deep pockets. I think them having zero views is statistically zero. So it means probably not literally zero, but it counts as zero in the in the ratings. But in any case, it's, it's not very many and it's not what they would have been hoping for. Dahlia, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Thank you for having me, Michael. <laughs> And thank you all for watching. We'll be back on Friday at 7pm. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.